Well, it is very nice to be here. I love this opportunity to be able to educate people about EMDR because it's you're hearing about it more and more, it seems like, but people don't really know what it, exactly what it is, and so there's still a lot of mystery around it. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to come and talk with you about it. Um, so before I start telling you about EMDR, I would be curious to hear what some of you have heard about EMDR. What, what, what do you think it is? What have you been told that it is? What, just people could throw out whatever. What have you heard about it? Nothing? Okay. 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 All right. Okay. Anybody else? Some people think it's hypnosis. Has anybody ever heard that? They think, well, it's, it's some kind of hypnosis. It's some kind of um, new age kind of thing. Actually, I thought that years ago. When it, I mean, it's been around since 1987, believe it or not. Um, and when I was going through my doctoral training um, it, it, in the 90s, in the well, actually late 80s, I guess, early 90s, it was when I was starting to hear about it, and I thought, oh, this is one of those kind of new age things, it's not based on science. I just didn't really look into it very much back at that time um, because it just didn't seem solid and, you know, the stuff I was learning in my, my doctoral uh, work. So I kind of pushed it aside for many years and then in the past probably 10 years, I started, ten, about 10 years ago, I just, I couldn't <laughs> ignore it anymore because I was hearing more and more people some of my colleagues that have been trained, more and more people talking about how effective this type of treatment was. And so I thought, well, I probably should, the responsible thing to do would be to look into this a little bit more and to learn more about it to see what it's really all about. And um, so that's when I actually shadowed somebody who, actually, we, I didn't shadow them. I sat in on a session with my client that I referred her to this person because my client had a lot of trauma issues, and I just was, I had reached a certain point that I couldn't seem to get past that with just typical talk therapy. And so um, I referred her to a colleague of mine that was trained in EMDR, and she invited me to sit in on the sessions, so I got to observe it, and that was amazing, and it just, and my client responded so well to that. You know, she, my colleague, in you know six sessions did what I tried you know for like three years I she got her farther in like six sessions than I was able to get in six or in three years I mean it just was dramatic so that's when I decided I probably need to, to really pay more attention to this and, and and get trained myself in it and it's a long which it should be it's a very involved training program um, and it's it's quite a process to get trained but because there's a lot to it and you have to you do need to know what you're doing um, and because it's, you're, you're dealing with people who um, 
you know, they've gone through some pretty, in some cases, some really severe uh, traumatic situations and you need to, this, and this kind of opens things up and you need to know what to do when, when that's opened up. So, um, so that's kind of how, you know, I was kind of like the rest of you, I didn't know a whole lot about it and I learned more about it. And um, other, some people have heard, another term that's used is called brain spotting. Has anybody ever heard of that? Okay, that's another term. It's, I don't know as much about that. It's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's a similar kind of thing, but it's more, it's a brain-based therapy approach that um, it's about fixed gaze, the fixed gaze position. So again, it's about the eyes. And there's something, as we talk more, you'll, I'll talk more about this, but there's something about the brain and our eyes and movement of our eyes that, is, that does something in the brain. It's just, it really is fascinating. Okay, so what exactly is EMDR? So the words don't really help that much to define it. So eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. So now you all know what that is, don't you? So it's like the words are as confusing as the the four letters. So just to break that down, eye movement is just referring to the back, the bilateral movements of your eyes. And now there's, there's two other types of bilateral stimulation that we use, which are tones, so wearing headphones, and the tones go back and forth, and then um, pulsars, which are um, vibrating pulses that go back and forth. And all this syncs together, okay, back and forth together, the tones, the pulses, and the eye movements. Um, and so those, those are three types of bilateral stimulation. So that we use all three of those. And so that's, it's the eye movement, include, and the other two, the other two bilateral. Eye movement desensitization. So the desensitization is referring to um, the kind of decrease of emotional charge uh, that a person has about an experience. So just how um, you just see a, a, it, they become less sensitized to that memory, those, that, that specific experience that they had. And then the reprocessing part of the word, of the term, um, refers to our brain and its ability to, um, how we process information and how adaptive our brain is at taking new information and working through it and helping us adapt to that new situation, whatever it is, and then we continue to move forward and, and things are good. So that part of the term just talks about there's a reprocessing part that the brain goes through that helps the person be more adaptive in how they view that experience that they had and how they move forward and deal with other situations currently going on in their life, okay? Um, so, you know, the, the, basic, the basic approach with EMDR, it's, it believes that past emotionally charged experiences are overly influencing your current um, emotions and sensations and thinking. So it's like the pa this past stuff is like amplifying reactions that you might have in your day-to-day -day life now, you know, that was way past, maybe things that have happened a long time ago, but it's like it's still, those are, they're like fueling your reactions and they're bigger than what they should be. And people will say it in that way, that it just, it feels just out of proportion to what it really should be. Um, and so, and, and 
the belief too now is about many of the psychological difficulties that people have um, are the result of these distressing life experiences which, which have not been stored in their memory properly, okay? Um, and they're said to be unprocessed or blocked. So, I mentioned a minute ago about adaptive, our brain is, tries to, to be, it's adaptive in how it helps us learn about new experiences. So it's based off this, um, what's called the AIP model, or Adaptive Information Processing Model. And basically what that, that is, is just that positive and successful experiences help us to handle new challenges. And our brains are equipped to manage and process adversity and difficulties that happen in our life, okay? So, that's that, that model, that's kind of how we understand the brain as we grow and develop and as we go through different experiences in our life. We, the brain kind of helps us make sense of it and then apply it as we continue to move forward. And so it, it, you know, we learn and we apply that. Um, and it's interesting, one of the things, and this we haven't really found this is just kind of a theory that more and more people really believe is what's happening with, um, with the EMDR, but, it, but with REM sleep, which is the rapid eye movement portion of sleep, every night we go through many cycles of REM sleep, and the, the purpose of that, what we believe with, because it's like, why, why, do, why does our body do that? Why do our eyes go back and forth, you know, and then they stop, and we go in a different stage of sleep, and then it comes back, and we go back and forth again. And the belief is that that's the brain's way of helping us process material of the day. So, you know, we go get up, go through a normal day, you know, have some stress maybe, some difficult situations at work or with family. And, um, and then by the end of the day, we're tired, we may feel stressed, whatever, we fall asleep. Ideally get a good night's sleep, go through several cycles of the REM sleep and wake up the next day and the brain's kind of helped process and, and put that away so that we're ready to take on the next day and maybe have learned a little bit from the day before and be able to use that in the new day. Um, so, the, so I'll talk more about the, the REM sleep and how the eye movements, um, how we try to do, that's what we're doing when we do the EMDR with people along with the other two bilateral stimulations. Um, but the, this AIP model basically guides um, the use of the, the EMDR procedure, so that's kind of our guidance on how we um, help, it basically helps the brain know how to heal um, the, the area that we're having difficulty with or that was traumatic in our life, okay? So what's unique about trauma memories? It's like, okay, we have all kinds of memories all the time. I mean, we, every day we create new memories, right? So what's so unique about trauma memories in the way that the brain takes that in? Um, so the, the part of the brain that's responsible for um, our memory, or storing memories, is the hippocampus. And you can kind of think of the hippocampus as kind of like a librarian. Um, so kind of the librarian, you know, catalogs and processes events and stores them in the right place. So, you know, kind of goes along and knows where, oh, here's where this memory goes, this memory goes, or this event. And so the, the, the belief is that some traumatic events, uh, they're so 
big and so overwhelming for the person that the hippocampus isn't able to do its job properly. So, and when this happens, the memories are kind of stored in a, in a raw, unprocessed form. And you can kind of think about it as, you know, the, the librarian's cart's getting, you know, overloaded and they're, you know, librarian's like, oh my gosh, it's too much, I, I, you know, it's too overwhelming. They shove it in a corner and they leave it because they just can't do it all. And that's kind of what the hippocampus does. It's like, there's a lot of stuff here. I, I don't know what to do with all this. I'm just gonna hopefully, it'll, you know, resolve itself or whatever. And so those memories um, get kind of caught or stuck in this place and they're unprocessed and they're easily triggered when they're in that raw form. So things can happen, you know, in, you know, something that happened 30 years ago that was traumatic, you can still be, you can still get triggered um, by things that happen just in your day-to-day -day life that are similar in some ways to what might have happened either in, um, you know, the tone of voice a person uses or a situation or, you know, visual cues. It's, it's interesting what seems to trigger people. I've just been fascinated by that um, through the years is what seems to trigger people. And then we trace it back and we see where it came from, you know, and from that poor trauma. So when we talk about trauma, what, do you, what, what are some types of trauma would you say might be things people experience? Car accident, yep. Death of a loved one. Death of a loved one, absolutely. What else? War. War, that's a, you know, that's a big one. That's one that, and we'll talk about uh, that and PTSD, because um, that's, that's actually where this all started, BMDR, was how effective it was at treating war veterans that came home and had these horrific experiences. You know, talk about that library cart being overflowing. You know, these, these men and women that would go into these situations and every single day for years sometimes, they would encounter some situation that was out of their control and that was, you know, horrific in many ways. So that, you know, that, that poor librarian's cart was like, that librarian left it and said, there is no way I can touch that stuff. So war is a big one. Um, sexual abuse, um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, which we don't, that's a little more, not as always as clear. We can understand why physical abuse, sexual abuse, but emotional abuse, sometimes even just in the form of neglect as a child. I've dealt with a lot of people who they just didn't get what they should have gotten from their parents growing up. They just, they were kind of neglected and left to their own devices and they felt unimportant and not valued. And um, so that is trauma because that's a kid that's not getting what they needed to get during that time and an absence of something and a, the, the message, the negative beliefs that I'm just not that valuable, or I'm not worth, you know, anybody paying attention to me. So those negative beliefs, are, then they carry that into adulthood and then into new relationships with that belief, I'm not worthy of this person caring about me, so I'll just let them take advantage of me and abuse me or whatever, because I don't deserve anything better. So that's how you sometimes see that old stuff playing into a person's current uh, life situation.
So uh, car accidents, bullying. This definitely is, I've worked with several people who have been bullied to, in some form or the other through, you know, elementary school, high school, even, you know, people in a, in a work situation that feel bullied by their boss. And it kind of, again, it's an ongoing thing where they don't feel like they have any control. That, that's a kind of a key thing that makes something traumatic for somebody is they feel like they don't have any control in the situation, whether it's a car accident or, you know, a bullying or the physical sexual abuse, they feel helpless. And they feel like this thing is just kind of being done to them that they can't do anything about. Um, another thing I've worked with people who've had kids who've had gone through cancer treatments when they're young and just the, you know, awful, painful things that they had to endure and, you know, seeing their parents basically holding them down or whatever needed to be done to get this taken care of. And um, so I've dealt with a lot of um, people as adults that have, can't walk into a hospital, for example. They're like, I got to go to the hospital, you know, because I'm, or I need to go to a doctor, you know, but they have fear of that because of what they've been through. And then, you know, certainly natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, you know, some of the things people live through that's terrifying. And, um, you know, and some, some of these things are just one incident, and then others are years long. And so it's like, well, what's worse? You, you know, we think, well, maybe if it just happened once, or, you know, it, maybe that, that shouldn't be as difficult to process or, but that isn't necessarily the case. I mean, it depends what it is. And um, the person that's experiencing it interprets what's happening, how much they feel they have control or not, um, and how much they feel like other people were there to kind of help them through it or not. Um, so, you know, you kind of, you, you can't judge, well, you shouldn't be that, you know, why are you so upset? Look, if somebody went through this, you know, there. And, and the interesting thing is some people go through horrible things in their life and they don't show any real indication that it's affecting their functioning in their current life. This is kind of fascinating to me. You know, it, and, I, you know, some people, it's like their brain is more resilient in some ways, or it just finds a way. They've got a superwoman librarian working in there, you know, that, that knows how to just put all those things where they need to go. But um, some people, because it's called learn about, so through, through therapy, just normal talk therapy, as I'm gathering history, I'll learn some of the things people have gone through, and they'll just kind of tell it as just, you know, reporting the history, because I'm asking them questions. As I'm hearing this stuff, I'm like, wow, you know? And then as I explore it more, they're kind of like, yeah, well, I just, you know, realized that I really focused on the fact that I, you know, something positive. So there's that adaptive part of their brain that was able to take that awful situation and be able to talk some reason into it and, and help that not be this, um, this, this, this scar or this, you know, big unprocessed thing that, 
was going to continue to impact their lives. So, so just because you've been through some awful stuff doesn't mean you automatically need to have EMDR to process your trauma. Some people, their brains just kind of know how to do it. Um. <clears throat> Gotta keep track of my time. <clears throat> Okay, so a lot of people come into counseling, some people call specifically because they say, I've had this trauma, I know you're trained in EMDR, I wanna have a session on what EMDR. So I do get people that that's what they're coming for. A lot of times though, people come in for other reasons and as I continue to work with them and this stuff is becoming uncovered, that's when I determine, you know what, this, there's some significant trauma that probably would help this person with their current um, symptoms. So people that come in with panic attacks, for example, you know, someone just might come in because they feel a lot of anxiety and they just, you know, want to learn how to manage their anxiety better. Um, and sometimes it's just through other techniques of, that I help, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation techniques, different things that help people manage their anxiety. But if, as I'm doing history, if I'm starting to kind of trace it back and see, oh, wait, there's some stuff that I think is still charged emotionally for this person that they've experienced in their life. And I think that's fueling the anxiety and the panic. And so it's like, wow, let's, let's go back and see if we can't process that and then see what we notice with your current symptoms. <laughs> a lot of the time, they, they notice a significant reduction in their anxiety. And just by focusing on something that happened a long time ago, not, not sitting there in my office doing relaxation techniques, that, that didn't work for them because it was related to that trauma in the, in back you know, in the earlier days. Um, sometimes complicated grief, if grief, I mean, grieving is awful, dealing with the loss is terrible. Some people, it's, it's just so consuming, they can't even function. They can't parent their children. They can't go to work. They can't hardly get out of bed. I mean, they are just so incapacitated by it. And a lot of times in those cases, it's because there's some loss they experienced in the past that never got properly resolved and, and, and didn't, there was no healing for it. And that's fueling their current grief. So it's like, it's just compounding it and making it, you know, that, that much, over, much more overwhelming for them. Um, and then phobias, same kind of thing, depressions, stress reactions to, to situations. Um, and then PTSD, which is the, the one on the top that I mentioned a minute ago, you know, you all, everybody has heard that term all the time, actually. And, you know, that stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, and it just, basically means post, which just means after. So, you know, after the trauma, someone is still having a reaction or, and, it's, and that's why we call it a d disorder. It's like it's, you know, it, the thing happened, they got through it, they survived it, but they can't seem to move on from it. And so a lot of people that I, that I use EMDR with, 
do, would get that diagnosis of PTSD because they meet the criteria of like the hypervigilance. That's a, that's a co real common um, symptom that people will have with PTSD that, that you know, they startle so easily. Someone will just you know, be kind of walking next to them and go, oh, you know, grabbing things and the person's like, what is wrong with you? You know, oh my gosh. Or they feel um, hypersensitive to noises on the TV or um, lots of things. And also dreams, kind of, not necessarily, sometimes dreams about the trauma, but a lot of times not. A lot of times dreams about just being out of control, being, you know, just, they just wake up and they know it was just a very upsetting dream. And they may not even be able to remember details of it. Um, so that, the, the, the dreams are usually a big indication. Um, and just an irritability and feeling, um, just it's certainly depressed and kind of consumed and they, you know, um, ruminating over whatever the issue is that um, they're struggling with. They just, it's like they can't seem to move past it. And, um, and again, our best example of that that most people can understand is our war veterans and, you know, them, you know, coming home and they're all happy about you know, they survived the war and, you know, they're coming home and they're with their families again. Isn't life wonderful? And life wasn't wonderful for them. And they, you know, they became very depressed and they were, you know, hyper vigilant and sensitive and having nightmares and, you know, reliving being in the battlefield. And, um, you know, and their families are like, what's wrong with you? You know, you're safe, you're home. Snap out of it, you know. People weren't always in the beginning very sympathetic with it. Because they're like, why, why can't you appreciate that you are fine and you survived it? And unfortunately, a lot of people, even with other types of trauma, kind of get that from people. You know, people can be sympathetic for a while. And then when you're not getting better, they kind of like, you know, you need to, you know, you need to move on. And, you know, don't you think the person would like to move on? I mean, it's like, of course they want to move on, but they just feel like they can't. They cannot let go of that peace for whatever reason. So, okay, how does EMDR work? So, you know, again, it kind of focuses on the brain's ability to constantly learn and taking past experiences and updating them with present information. So that's, that's what EMDR, EMDR is trying to do. It's helping the healthy parts of your brain, because a lot of people are very um, high-functioning, successful in their work, and you know, have these good lives from the outside looking in, but they just see that they're having, you know, they're, a lot of times they suffer in silence. They don't always let people know how much they're struggling. Um, and so that, that's, where this, this, this past, these past uh, emotionally charged experiences interfere with the brain's ability to update and kind of help them heal and be and, and you know function in a healthy manner, uh, in a healthy way moving forward. And the EMDR kind of breaks through that interference that's getting in the way of that happening and helps you let go of the past, update your experiences to a healthier present kind of. Um, perspective on the situation and on your life and your and the things going on moving forward. And it, 
it uses what I call bilateral stimulation, so it's the eye movements, the tones, and the pulsars. Some people, I always give my people a choice. Some people do, do not like the eye thing. Some people who have migraines feel like it triggers their migraines, so if a person has a seizure disorder, a lot of times we won't use the eye movement. Um, so the tone, some people don't like the tones in their ears. So it's, the nice thing is we have three choices. A lot of my people like all three of them. They say, I, want, I like all three, and it just, it's like so much stimulation, they feel like it helps them process it better. Okay. Um, so who came up with this? I mean, who in the world thought about moving your eyes back and forth to help heal trauma? And this woman is the one, Francine Shapiro. She died a few years ago. Um, but in 1987, she was a grad student in psychology. And different variations of the story, but the, the one I'm familiar with is she um, was stressed out in her grad program, and she, was, she just had a favorite place that she liked to walk in this park nearby. And she was really stressed one day, and as she was walking, she was just kind of looking at the know, rocks that were ahead of her, her eyes were going back and forth. And she noticed after you know five minutes or so of doing that, she felt better. And she's like, well, that's strange. So that kind of was what planted that seed in her head. Clearly, it's a lot more involved than that. But that's, she noticed she felt better, so she, start, she went through a program, she graduated, got her degree, and she started formal research in this area. And um, so she and her associates developed like a number of procedures that, you know, you pair the trauma with, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but how, what you do in a therapy session, the trauma with the negative beliefs. And that they found that when, um, when, when they would have people do this uh, bilateral stimulation, that the people reported that the disturbance lessened, and that the, the intensity of it lessened. So again, that's when she really felt like there's something to this, and so she continued her, re I mean, her whole life has been doing this. Um, and it's been really validated, and, and there's been many studies that have been done, many, many studies that have been done on how effective EMDR is. And um, in fact, the, um, the, let's see, the veterans, American Society of Veterans, I forget what, I'm sorry, the name of it, but for, for um, PTSD and war veterans, it is the number one treatment approach. That, and if you don't do it, you're considered kind of, you know, malpractice or something. I mean, it is, that's how effective it is for war veterans, how, how significantly it helps those, those situations. So, you know, obviously the, in the beginning, that's what really what it was for is, is these war veterans and people have been in horrific situations. But then what we started to realize is, and those are called the big T's, so the big trauma, big T. But what we realized is that people with the small T's, which I don't know if the people would agree that they're small T's, but things like bullying and um, just things that are just, you know, more of the neglect, those kind of things, uh, those really were helped tremendously with EMDR as well. And, and so and it just, it's like I just keep reading more and more articles each month that come out about studies about 
you know, doing it with an eating disorder, person with an eating disorder. And I mean, it's just, we're discovering more and more symptoms and, and disorders that can be helped by using this method of treatment. This is kind of an interesting picture. So this is a PET scan of the brain. And the first one with all the red in it is a woman who's diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And then the one next to it is after four EMDR sessions. And you see how much uh, that overactivity, how much that reduced by the, using EMDR. So I mean, there, these are, this is stuff in, that is happening in the brain. I mean, it's, it's not just this voodoo stuff that I used to think it was. I mean, this is, they are finding clear um, evidence of what it's doing in the brain to help um, quiet that down. And then I've got a couple testimonials. I just thought these were kind of interesting. These are not patients that I've had, um, but I just thought they were kind of interesting. So you can read through those if you want. Can you all see that or you want me to read it? So he talks about medication, um, and that is uh, sometimes people, oftentimes people when they come in to, to therapy, they are on medication because they've been dealing with this for so long and they've needed something to help them manage, you know, and function. <clears throat> but I've seen a lot of people that once things get processed, they start to wean off the medicine, and some people have gotten off their medicine completely. It's like they don't need it anymore. They finally dealt with the core, what the core issue was, and, and, and have had healing happen for that area, and they're able to really reduce or get off their medication. So that's very appealing for a lot of people who, you know, don't love being on meds. Uh, meds still very good thing, really helpful for a lot of people. I, I'm a definitely supportive of medication, and sometimes I I won't do EMDR therapy if a person seems too fragile emotionally. I, I don't want to, I, that's, it, because the, you, you got to, I mean, you have to be able to do this processing and, and withstand some of the, I don't, that sound makes it sound like it's really intense. It actually, a lot of people are more scared of it once they realize, well, let it go. <laughs> you know, I was expected to be a lot worse. It's not. It's like initially, the, the talking about the trauma is not fun, okay, but it's not like you haven't been thinking about the trauma your whole life anyway. I mean, it's like, it's just, you're, this is one more person you're telling trauma to, and, and then having to focus on the trauma with some other things that we um, kind of have you do to, to set up to be ready for the EMDR processing. Um, so sometimes if someone's really fragile, I will, and one of the things too, that some people who have been through um, a lot of really horrific trauma as a child, um, they tend to dissociate. and. What that means is they just, as an adult, they, because as a child, again, being in situations of abuse where you have no control and it, it's ongoing and you never know when it's gonna happen and you never know exactly what's gonna happen each time and you just have to somehow, as a little kid, figure out how to 
get through it. So it's like the brain does some things for these little kids as far as removing them from the situation when it's happening. And so that's a dis it dissociates in that way. But then a lot of times, and then from lots of other situations, the kids kind of learn, how they're, they're able to, to kind of do that. And as they grow into adulthood, they may still do that whenever they're, whenever they're in a situation that's really stressful. Um, they will kind of find themselves kind of distancing or, and sometimes, um, and this is where the, the whole thing of, of alternate personalities comes in, where, you know, the person, it's, you know, these are all the same person, but they're different kind of parts of the person. And sometimes the more, you know, if there's a lot of stress, the more assertive side of that person is the one that kind of, kind of puts on their hat, their assertiveness hat, and they come out and they're the ones, you know, handling the situation. But then in another situation, it's more of the, the, the quiet, shy little child that's there that doesn't feel um, empowered in any way or able to deal with the situation. So, it's, it's, so you have to be careful about, that's why I say when you don't just, you need to be really trained in the MDR and understand what to do if you start to see some of this stuff happening for a person. Um, and that's why sometimes if I see a person's really fragile, I want them to, to get stabilized on medicine so that they're feeling a little more, um, I guess a little more hardier, just a little bit more able to like, okay, I'm, I'm functioning pretty well. I'm not, certainly not, you don't do it with somebody who's suicidal or who has had suicidal thoughts in the past until they really get to a pretty stable point. Um, so you do have to be careful with it. And there's, there's a lot of prep work, which I think, oh, here's another testimonial. You could read through that one. So what's the actual therapy session like? Um, there's a lot of what's called prep work that you need to do when you're getting ready to do EMDR with somebody. Um, one of the things I look at is I look at their tendency to dissociate. So I kind of want to evaluate that, make sure that I certainly look at their, um, you know, how much depression is there, if they have suicidal thoughts at all. Um, I try to determine um, their support system. What, that's really important to know uh, what kind of support they have outside of, you know, when they leave a session. I want to know that they're going into a home environment that's, there's some kind of support there from a spouse or a family, you know, another family member um, or some supportive, supportive friends. Um, so kind of just doing a general history and and understanding kind of where the person is at now and what kind of supports they have in their life and how they've been functioning too, how well they've been functioning and looking for, because that's kind of where you start, is looking for what's currently not working for the person. What's currently um, giving them problems with, you know, how they're operating in their workplace or in their marriage, in their, uh, in their school, getting their schoolwork done. Um, so kind of doing a history of that, 
And then, it's, and then kind of, once we kind of identify, they talk about, you know, there's some of the current problems they're having, that's when then we'll kind of start to look more into the past. Well, tell me about your growing up years. Tell me about, you know, what was it like in your family? And, um, and then sometimes doing different techniques that kind of help the person, you know, think about the feeling or what's happening currently, the symptoms they might have in their work with their boss, for example, that just really get really tight and frustrated or feel really inadequate in their workplace with their boss, with this one person. So then sometimes we'll do what's called a bridge back or a float back where you kind of have them close your eyes and just kind of go back and see if they can remember another time in their life that they felt those same feelings. And, um, and so they might say, well, yeah, I do remember in, you know, in college, there's this one professor that just always made me feel stupid or whatever. So we talk about that, I, I make a note of that, and then kind of go back more, is there any other time? So then they keep floating back until sometimes they'll say, well, I forgot, you know, at my sixth birthday party, I remember this kid that came and, you know, he really ruined the whole party for me and made me feel stupid or whatever. So, and a lot of times people say, you know, I haven't thought about that in a long time, or, you know, they just, they, it, so they, people don't always come in knowing what it is that they need to work on. And a lot of times I, sir, I can't even figure that out until we start the processing. A lot of times the processing, once you start the processing, that's when you start to see the brain goes where it needs to go. It kind of knows what areas are not healed that need attention. Because I will have people that, you know, we might start on focusing on a target of some kind of abuse in their past. And that's where we start, and we start the bilateral stimulations. And after about 20 or 30 passes, stop it. And ask, what do you notice now? And they'll say, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about, you know, when I was married and I remember my mom coming into the bride, bridal room and saying this to me and I haven't, you know, and, I, and then they'll start crying or something. So, I mean, it's like, it, they'll start to uncover the other, you know, it's like kind of like we talk about it being, you know, there's the core trauma, but then there's these channels that you got to clean out, okay? So you, you start there, but then, you know, it can open up and lots of, and you have to go through each one. And sometimes they kind of get cleared out, it kind of generalizes. That's one of the neat things about EMDR is that you don't have to process every single memory or traumatic thing that ever happened to you. Um, because if you hit the right target, and that's where all this prep work comes in, if you hit the right target, it tends to generalize to other areas. And so, you know, we, we process the, the target that seems to be the biggest, so we look at the, the, um, the earliest disturbing memory, the most traumatic disturbing memory, and the most recent disturbing memory. And usually one of those is where we start. Oftentimes it's the earliest, because again, if we can get the earliest, because the others a lot of times tend to trace back to that, the first one. So a lot of times that's where I will start. What is the earliest memory they have of that upsetting, disturbing experience. Um, and so I've set up my little machine here, but it's similar to this one. Um, this is just a light bar that the light, the blue light goes back and forth. 
and then the earphones are the tones, and then the pulsars. So these, these are the pulsars that you, you hold on to, and they just buzz in each hand. And then the headphones <clears throat> and the lights, and it all goes the same direction together. So when we're, when we're choosing a target, we um, pick, like I said, maybe the earliest memory that they have that's, that has, I always ask my clients to identify where there's an emotional charge. So, um, so that's, I'm usually looking for just when they talk about the picture or the memory, you could see the emotion wells up. They just, it's like, you know that that's, that's probably one of the ones you're gonna need to target. And, um, and then, so you, you say, okay, I want you to focus on that, uh, that picture. Like I remember sitting in the, at the kitchen table and my mom came in and, you know, so that's, they're describing the picture that they remember when I was eight years old. And so, okay, so describe that and then, then you ask them, um, what emotions are you feeling as you think about that picture? They say, well, I'm feeling scared feeling sad, I'm feeling abandoned, I'm feeling unimportant, whatever, so they list emotions. Um, where do you feel it in your body? That's really important because, and it's amazing how the physical things people feel when they're processing. Like all of a sudden they'll start to feel nauseated or they'll feel a pain in their back or you know, in their shoulder or, I mean, it's just, it, it's like the brain is there back at that time and the same things you were feeling, you're, you're feeling them briefly and that really shows you that you've plugged in that. So we want to get as many of those things together as we can. And then the most, one of the most important things is what negative beliefs do you have about yourself when you think of that picture? So you're looking for what belief they're still carrying with them. I'm inadequate. I'm worth, worthless. I'm not important. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I have no control. You know, all these things are negative beliefs that really aren't true, but the person believes it. And even the, the smart part of their brain knows, well, of course I have control over this situation. And they'll even explain how they have control, but they don't feel it. And they feel like they are out of control. And so they're at this, they're, this war in their body of saying, well, of course you have control but they don't feel it, and they just still feel like this little kid that's you know, being reprimanded by their parent and can't do anything about it. So then once they kind of put all those things together, I'll say, okay, I want you to focus on that. So they're focusing on the picture they've created, the memory, the feelings it creates in them, where they feel it in their body, and the negative belief. And then I'll say, okay, I want you to focus on that, and I start the bilateral stimulation. And they watch that, like I said, 30 to 40 passes. And I stop it and I say, what, take a breath, let it go. What do you notice now? What do you get now? And they just report wherever their brain's at at that moment. Well, I just remember thinking of this or what. And, then I'll, and there's not a lot of talking. This is when I don't do really any talking. I get out of the way and I just guide it. And so I'll say, okay. If they say, oh, I remember this birthday party and how this kid was being mean to me, I'll say, okay, I want you to focus on that. Start the bilateral stimulation again. 
I stop it. What do you notice now? And they'll say, well, I'm still at that birthday party. And I remember, you know, okay, I want you to focus on that. Go again. So we just keep doing that until they kind of reach a point where it's kind of stuck. Oh, the other thing I ask them is how disturbing does it feel to you when we're creating this? How disturbing does it feel to you when you think of that picture on a scale of zero to 10? Zero is not disturbing at all. 10 is the most disturbing. So they rate it. And they'll say oh, it's about an eight or a nine. Okay. So then that's called a SUDS, S-U-D-S. It stands for Subjective Units of Disturbance. And so we're looking at, we want to see that change. We want to see that get smaller. And so at some point after several of these um, passes that we do in stopping and where do you know, what do you notice Sal? If it kind of, sometimes people say, well, nothing's really changed. I'm still you know, noticing, I'm still at the same birthday party, but <clears throat> my mind's kind of drifting or whatever. Then I usually bring it back to the target and say, when you think about that picture, how disturbing does it feel to you now? And most of the time, they will say, oh, it's about a, maybe a six. So it's already come down. And there's part of the reason, part of what works with EMDR is the fact that it's helping the brain, the librarian catalog those memories. But there's also something about this idea of dual attention so, um, you know, I'm asking them to call up this memory, the feelings they have with it, and, and you know, so they're holding that in their head, and then I'm asking them to watch this light and feel it. So it, they're having to split their attention on these two different things. It's called dual attention, and there's something about that that also lessens the intensity of the, that thing they're focusing on. Um, it makes it feel less... Um, less charged, okay? Um, and so what we're looking for is obviously for the suds to go down, 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 they get, and it become less and less disturbing. And um, and the interesting thing that I'll start to see happen that tells me, even without asking them, I can tell when, when it's becoming less disturbing without even asking them, um, but is that they will say things like, well, you know, yes, that was, that kid was really mean to me, but, you know, I, I know he did come from a rough home too, and, you know, I know he was abused, and, you know, he just was doing what he learned, and I know that you, you know, so they're like starting to like, do therapy to themselves, things that maybe I would have said or somebody else would have said a while back, and they wouldn't, it would have just, it could, they can't, they couldn't believe it because it wasn't, they're, they're, they weren't healed in that area. They couldn't accept that rational part of their brain was trying to get to that material, but it was like off on an island. The brain couldn't access it. And the EMDR somehow helps a bridge form that lets the healthy parts of your brain get in there and heal that area and basically tell that area, you know, this, you're, you're okay. This, you know, it isn't true. You, you do have value. You know, you do have worth. And, you know, look, here's how you know that. I'll even have clients will say, you know, 
well, it's silly that I'm sitting here saying that I'm unlovable because I've got all these people that tell me how much they love me all the time. Um, or So they'll, they'll be talking kind of almost to themselves, saying these things that show that they, it's becoming less and less charged. And they'll eventually get to a point where they'll kind of say, you know, when I think about it, it, you know, it always bother me. It always be sad that that happened, but it doesn't, it, it's, I'm able to just, that was the past. That's, you know, and I'm just putting that away and I'm able, I don't want to really think about it anymore. And they're able to walk away from it and kind of put it away in a place that they don't have to see very often. And they feel, and, and they feel lighter. I hear that all the time. My clients will say, I feel so much lighter. I feel liberated. I feel joy again. And, and they look around, nothing's changed in their life at all. So is it like finally somebody was being nice to them or nothing has changed except they've done EMDR. And it's like their brain lets them look at the situation in a whole different way. So how long does EMDR therapy take? Um, I've had people, I've had, I had someone who one session and they came back the next week and said, I don't know what that is that you did, but I can't believe how this week has been so good. I'm not having any nightmares anymore. I'm not, I, I'm going to work, I'm being assertive. I mean, it's almost like I'm sitting there thinking, this is, just, is this placebo? I mean, it just seemed too soon. But I continued to work with the person for a few more months with some work issues. They wanted to try to get a different job or whatever. And they felt, the thing is, they finally felt freed up and energized to be able to do that, to get a different job. And they felt like, I, you know, I've got a lot to offer. I, I am gonna, I don't have to stay in this job. I, I, people will be lucky to have me as an employee. And I, I'm gonna go out there and see what's out there. And, you know, so there, it's like it frees them up finally to be able to, go out and be confident and, you know, do what they want to do with their life. So, and I've had people, well, I'm still, I mean, I've, I've been seeing a couple people I've been doing it for maybe about on and off for like a year. And sometimes people, especially if it's, there's a lot of complicated trauma and there's been a lot of um, people that have like had a lot of sexual abuse, especially through the years, like, a, throughout a lot of their childhood. That, that's so complicated, especially as a, you know, they're trying to enter into their own relationships or marriages and you know, having sexual relationships. That, a lot of times, there just takes a lot of time. And the nice thing about, you know, you can, I can switch back and forth. Sometimes people come in and I think we're gonna do EMDR, but there's something that's happened that week and I'm just like, you know what, we just need to spend this time talking about this and giving you a place to, because, you know, we don't do a lot of talking with the MDR. We kind of just, you know, so sometimes they need to talk. And they need, and even sometimes in the middle of a session, if something kind of, you know, a, some big revelation happens, sometimes I want to take a few minutes and talk to the client and make sure they understand, wow, this is something pretty important. Let's talk about this for a minute. Um, and then I always try to close the session with, um, sometimes, it, it, a lot of times it's called an incomplete session because you've not successfully gotten the suds down to a zero or a one, and, um, and there's still some emotional charge. It's, they're better, they feel better, but it's still, there's st you know that there's still 
work to do in the next week when they come back, you're gonna have to <clears throat> start at that same target. And then the <clears throat> first thing you do is check in about where's, what's your suds today. You ask about triggers that may happen during the week. A lot of times once the processing starts, even though I do things where to close up the session and help the person get back to a good place before they walk out of my office, I tell them, you know what, the processing will still continue. Once you've kind of started going there and you're doing this with the brain, you may have unusual dreams, you might have some nightmares, you might have um, things, you might start crying when you see a commercial on TV that remind, I mean, so those are called triggers, things that just cause an, an emotional charge. Those things may happen, and I tell them it's so important that you pay attention to those and you write those down and then you bring those in and we could talk about because that helps me know how they're processing and where we maybe need to go the next session. And so that's really important, keeping a log of any triggers that they have. <clears throat> um, something else I wanted to say to you about the bilateral stimulation. You know, there's, there's a lot of people find that it's very soothing. So, so there's... It's, it's helping the brain process, but there's also something that feels good to the brain, I guess that's the best way you could say, about that bilateral, you know. And if you think about <clears throat> rocking a baby, or people, love, some people rock, you've ever noticed that, adults, <clears throat> but when they're upset, they'll rock, or sometimes you'll see people, especially when they're holding the baby, they'll, they're swaying side to side. There's something, and even walking, when we walk, it's a bilateral, you know, Bilateral, and that's why a lot of people like to walk. They feel good, they feel better when they walk. And especially if they're walking, you know, and thinking through some problems or some issues. <clears throat> so, um, so there's something, you know, to that too. There's something that is calming to the brain and makes a person just feel better with the bilateral stimulation. So I will give people, um, you can do your own bilateral stimulation at home. There's lots of different ways you can do that. You can buy the expensive equipment online if you want that are, that's smaller than this. Um, some people do that. But like the tappers, a lot of people like those because it, you can plug them in anywhere and use, the, use them to get bilateral stimulation. Um, but you also can do, I call it the butterfly hug. You all can do this with me. So just take your hands like this and kind of cross your thumbs, lay them across your chest. Just lay them flat on your chest, there you go. And then you're just gonna Go as fast as you want. But if you're laying down in bed or something, like you wake up and you can't get back to sleep, it's a great kind of a soothing thing. Some parents have their they teach their kids this because it's a, a self-calming, a soothing um, little exercise that they could do. Um, also, you can look at two corners of the room and just have your eyes move back and forth between two corners of the room. I don't like that one as well. That one I like more the tapping one, but. Um, I think there's even some apps now. I, I was, in fact, there's one I was going to look at recently. I heard about that you can get that somehow simulate the, the bilateral stimulation. But you want to be careful because you don't want to I, just doing like this this one. You're not going to, you know, open up some big trauma area of your life. It has. There's a lot of other things that have to be in place for you to start to process some trauma. So just doing that isn't going to process. That's more of a self-soothing or a kind of a calming effect. Um, just from doing the tapping. 
Okay, so what I wanted to do now, because I've got, let's see, so it's 8 o'clock. Are we done at 8 or 8.30? 8, whenever, okay. So what I'd like to do, because I'm pretty much done with the, with kind of wanted to teach you about EMDR, but I did want to do, if you wanted to do a little, um, one of the things that I do, I'm not going to do any EMDR with anybody because I don't want to open up something and then send you off home and, you know, there you are. So, but there are some things that I, that I do with every person, and these are great things to teach, to do yourself or to teach your kids or teach anybody who, they're just ways of, they're kind of relaxation or um, um, imagery kinds of things that you do that help you be able to calm some of the anxiety you might feel about um, situations. And so, um, so I would like to kind of do that um, if someone wants to volunteer to do that. And then I also want to take any questions that people have. So I don't know if we want to do the questions first and then do the demonstration. I mean, do people have questions? Yes. You don't think when you dream, you have REM sleep? The rapid eye movement is when you are in your dream sleep, when you're dreaming. The really deep sleep is like stage four, where you're just like dead to the world and your body doesn't move. But everybody has REM sleep. You have to. I mean, it's like it's, it's something that, and some people don't have enough of it. Some people who have sleep um, disorders, they, they have just very limited amount of REM sleep. So that, and that, and those people usually don't feel very good. That's just kind of an important part, one of the, of the stages of sleep. Yes. Yes. So I'm assuming that's some of the stuff that you're trying to figure out in the mind, right? Yes. Yeah. So he's talking about the fight or flight kind of fight or flight situation that we get in, our body gets in that where the adrenaline's pumping and the sympathetic nervous system is triggered and we're like just feeling really stressed and we're and we're faced with the choice of do I stay and fight in this situation or do I run? And you know that that used to be very a very good thing for us to, you know, because there's in times when we were in physical danger a lot, we needed to be able to have energy to run away from the dangerous. I, these days, most of the stress we feel is emotional or mental stress. It's not physical danger. 
Um, but our body still does the same thing, and that's really hard on our body to go through that a lot. And that's like people who have panic attacks or people who have um, people who have PTSD and are in this constant state of hypervigilance. It's like their sympathetic nervous system is just like constantly activated, and that causes all kinds of health problems if, they, if it goes on long periods of time. It's just it, it feels miserable to be in, in that sympathetic state of arousal all the time. It's, it does not feel good. And so this, again, is kind of what helps that calm down and, and your brain to be able to kind of logically sort through it and make sense of it and heal. Other questions? Yes? Um, has EMDR helped with migraines? Um, I've not worked with anybody that's had that's for that specific problem. But um, I have heard there is what's called a protocol for migraines. So there's protocols for you know, any type of disorder somebody would come in for. But, so there is a protocol that a, person, a therapist would use if they're trained, if they work with people with migraines, that they say is effective. So again, I would say pretty much anything, there's the possibility that, again, if, if there's some connection to something in the past that's seems to be adding to that problem, then it probably can be improved by doing the EMDR. So it may not make the migraines go away completely, but it might take away a big part of why you get them as often as you do or something like that. Okay. Yes? I was trained, um, I was trained six years ago. So I've been practicing for about six years. Yes? Um, have you heard of studies that have? So he's asking about serotonin levels and if there's any, you know, the thing that's hard about serotonin levels, it's hard to measure. You can't really get a, 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 a good measure on, you know, what we, what we understand about depression and anxiety, symptoms of depression and anxiety that and we used to think it was all in their head, you know, well, all in their, in the mental psychological realm. Um, but now we're seeing in a lot of people, it's actually the symptoms they're experiencing are symptoms of low serotonin rather than um, just symptoms of depression, that, you know, the sadness, feeling irritable, short-tempered, poor focus, you know, lack of concentration, um, feeling sad, tear, you know, tearful all the time, crying at the littlest thing, um, snapping at people all the time. So those are all things that can be, certainly we've called those in the past, we've called that depression and or anxiety. Um, but we're seeing that for some people, those are actually symptoms of low serotonin, and when they're put on an SSRI, or things like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexapro, there's lots of them out there. Um, and what those medicines do, if they go in and they increase the serotonin at the synapses, in, at the neurotrans in the neurotransmitter at the synapses, and make more serotonin available, 
And for people where there's deficiencies in how much is av available, when they start all of a sudden getting more and more serotonin available, kind of what they should be getting anyway, but their body's just not producing it at that level for some reason, um, they start feeling better. And so from what I, I've not seen anything that said that this process increases serotonin. Um, what we do know, you know, serotonin's interesting because some people, so what we kind of know about serotonin is that when, we're, when we go through periods of prolonged stress, our serotonin levels drop. I don't know if the brain just sets its way of somehow helping us power through. And then a lot of times, it returns back to where it should be. So the levels go back up and we're feeling better, oh good, got past that, feeling good. But for some people, their levels don't go back to where they should be. They stay low, even though the stress, is, the, the difficult situation has passed. And sometimes it's heredity. You know, some, they see it in the families that there's just a tendency for their, to have deficiencies or low levels of serotonin and that don't, re, don't restore themselves. Um, and so those people kind of need the medicine to, to be introduced to kind of almost kickstart the brain and producing it at the right levels again. So kind of by taking it every day for six, eight months, a year, 18 months, it retrains the brain. And, then, and for a lot of people, they find they can go off those medicines. And they're, it's like their body, they're, they're, they feel fine. They've been able to kind of fix the problem with the serotonin. Um, other people find they go off the medicines and the, they go right back to that place and they just, their body needs, they can't, it needs that put into the system every day. So that, but that's kind of an interesting thought. I've, I've, I've not seen anything about that. I, it would surprise me if it would, but other questions? Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Um, performance anxiety, performance anxiety is actually, I mean, that one, usually you can trace it back. There's a time where a kid, when he was a kid, he felt really, really embarrassed because he was in front of a group and he, kids were making fun of him where he had, you know, a lot of times they build it up being this horrific experience and it really, it wasn't that big of a deal, but to them it felt horrible and they feel really, really anxious every time they're in a situation where they have to perform in some way, whether it's in a sport or public speaking or um, whatever it might be. And so that, um, I worked with somebody a couple years ago with, um, that just really anxious about speaking. And he did really well with the EMBR. It just kind of really helped him. He, he still didn't love speaking in public. I mean, either you are okay with it or you don't like it. But he got to where he could do it because he had to in his job. And he wanted to be able to do it and be okay, you know, and not be a mess before and afterwards. So, um, yeah, that works. It works for that. Well, why don't we, um, does anybody want to volunteer to come up and... I promise I won't hurt you. Okay. Come on up. Okay. I'll have you sit here so you don't have to face everybody, and I'll face everybody. Um, okay. 
You know what? Bring your chair up. Here, let's do this, because people won't be able to hear me. Yeah, bring that one here. Okay, cause, can you hear me if I kind of talk this way? Okay, good. Thank you for volunteering. So there are, um, let's see. So I think I'm going to do what it's called the safe place or the, the um, calm place. So this is a great uh, visualization or, or kind of guided imagery. We're not really guided. This is you, I asked the person to kind of come up with on their own. So um, what I would say to the person is I would say, okay, I want you to think about a place that when you think about this place, it could be a real place or an imagined place. But when you think about it, it makes you feel very calm, very peaceful, safe, and relaxed. And so kind of close your eyes for a minute, go inside, and just kind of let yourself think about where, what place comes to mind when you think of a place that would be calm, peaceful. Some people think of an ocean, others think of um, floating in a swimming pool, being on the beach, on the mountains. What comes to mind for you? Being on a glider? Okay. So tell me more about that. What You're on this glider. What do you see around you? What do you smell? What do you feel? So you feel a lot of peace when you're on that glider. You just feel the soothing kind of back and forth motion of it. And what do you notice in, inside as you think about sitting on that glider right now? The love that you feel? Sitting with somebody on a two-person glider. Okay. Good. Okay, so I want you to open your eyes as you're thinking about that, and I want you to follow What do you notice now? Now my heart feels warm. If your heart feels warm, okay, good. Good. So if you were to give a name or a phrase to that, what, what phrase, what name would you give that just really picks up on that place that really would immediately remind you of that? Just Barbie. Barbie, okay. So when you think of the word Barbie, it reminds you of this place, this place that you felt loved and safe and calm and peaceful. Okay, I want you to think of, I want you to say out loud the word Barbie and, th and go to that place on the glider, okay? Barbie, just one? Yeah. Okay, what do you notice now? Warm fuzzies in our head, kind of a balloon in there that's going to pop. Okay. So go ahead and focus on that again. And just kind of close your eyes now for a minute and just let yourself kind of be in that glider and just saying it to yourself, Barbie, and just feeling the love, the peace, the calm that you feel in that glider. 
Just let yourself kind of rest in that for a minute. What do you notice now? She's thinking about a song that she sang while she was sitting there. That song makes you feel how? Happy. Happy. Okay. <laughs> well, and what? And so, what Jane's experiencing, I think, is. Um, a lot of times what happens when people, and the, with, what I'm doing with the eye movements, so I'm just having her watch this silver case, um, a lot of times I would have the person hooked up to the machine with all three, if, um, but sometimes I just use this when we're doing what's called resourcing, building in these resources that they can use when they're feeling distressed. But a lot of times this, is, this happens with people, they feel this emotion, but it's a positive emotion, okay? It's, it's this surge of the feeling of love, of just feeling really warm and connected to people, and that's a good thing. And what doing the eye movements just for like six or eight passes, I don't do more than that, because that can actually, the more you do, the more you start, the brain starts to go into other areas, and we don't want to do that, not when we're doing the resourcing. Um, and so I would just do six or eight passes, and it's, it's called tapping that in. It's, it's helping set in that resource that the person can use. Um, and then I would have them practice that you know, every day, like especially at night when you're going to bed. It's a great time to do. This, th I would encourage everyone to, to do this little exercise and have a place that you create that is your safe, warm, um, calm place that you can go. And to do it at night before you go to bed and just let yourself be there and kind of rest in it. And the more details you get, about the situation, the better and more effective it is, the more you're really able to put yourself there. And there's been studies done on imagery and this kind of relaxation, and the body changes physiologically. When people go to these places and relax, th their body shows a difference. And it's, it's, so it's a great thing, EMDR aside, it's a great thing to do as a way of calming yourself and just even when little things happen during the day and you're just feeling kind of rattled, to kind of say your word, Barbie, and let yourself kind of be on that glider again, you know, and just let yourself rest in that. Even if it's just for a few moments, you know, if in, the, in the busyness of our days, we don't have time to go lay down somewhere for 15 minutes. That'd be nice. Most of us don't have that luxury. So you can build in these things. That, that's why the Q word is important because you can get so, it can get so reinforced that she can, just get to a place, all she has to do is say Barbie, and her body responds to that. As if it's, she's gone through the whole imagery thing. You know, she can, it could become that reinforced. And so it's, it's a very powerful tool to use. So I like to build in those things um, for people to help them feel like they've, they're equipped to be able to handle some of the emotion that starts to feel big. It's like, okay, go to your safe place now. You know, what's your cue word? I'll kind of help them get back to that if they're struggling, you know, in the session. And I just, they it immediately, 
brings them down, calms them down. Any questions about that exercise? Thank you for volunteering. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, I don't have anything else. If, unless, if you have questions you want to ask me after, you're welcome to come up um, as well. But I certainly appreciate your attention, and I hope, hope this helped you understand a little bit more about EMDR and what it is. Um, did you have? Oh, okay. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome.